All right, everybody, I'd like you to take your left hand and stick it out like this. We're going to sing together this morning as we gather together. Remember, you're going to clap, and uh, you're going to uh, hit the person uh, on your right, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and the top of your head twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. So that's pretty good. We're going to sing here, ready? Find us together, Lord, find us together. Take your Bibles and turn me to Acts chapter 3, please. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of this uh, very crucial chapter uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to get there uh, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Many of you in the last uh, couple of weeks in particular have been following very closely the story of Dr. Eric Brantley, one of the two medical missionaries in Western Africa who contracted Ebola. And you've been following how he has been brought back to the United States. Uh, It's been easy to follow this story because it's been all over the news. Uh, We have a particular interest in it, of course, because they're uh, one of us, right? These these two, they're uh, our folk. Followers of Jesus Christ there uh, to serve in his name. Uh, There was, at the beginning, when they came to the United States for the first time, uh, you you know, a bit of fear. uh, What's going to happen? They're bringing Ebola to the United States. It shouldn't happen. Most of the coverage, though, has since that time, that initial kerfluffle, has been more positive, with one or two exceptions. Um, This week, Ann Coulter, a name you probably recognize, uh, Ann Coulter published an article on her blog. Ann Coulter is a conservative columnist. Uh, Ann Coulter makes headlines most when she is the most scathing. Well, um, she wrote an article, and the title, maybe you heard it, it was a good bit of uh, talk about it. It was called Ebola Docs Condition Downgraded to Idiotic. And the point of her article was that American Christians should just be serving in the United States because America needs help, desperate help, and you can have more influence by helping in America than you can over the, uh, around the world, and uh, you should just stay here. And the reason that American Christians want to leave the United States is because they're tired of fighting the culture war and being criticized for it, so they go overseas to escape life in the United States. Well, let me read a few paragraphs of this atrocity that she called an article. Uh, She writes this. 
There's little danger of an Ebola plague breaking loose from the treatment of these two Americans at the Emory University Hospital. But why do we have to deal with this at all? Why did Dr. Brantley have to go to Africa? Can anyone serve Christ in America anymore? If Dr. Brantley had practiced at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles and turned one single Hollywood power broker to Christ, he would have done more good for the entire world than anything he had accomplished in a century spent in Liberia. Ebola kills only the body. The virus of spiritual bankruptcy and moral decadence spread by so many Hollywood movies infects the world. Not only that, but it's our country. Your country is like your family. We're supposed to take care of our own first. Of course, if Brantley had evangelized in New York City or Los Angeles, the New York Times would get upset and accuse him of anti-Semitism. Evangelize in Liberia and the Times will be totally impressed. Which explains why American Christians go on missions trips to disease-ridden cesspools. They're tired of fighting the culture war in the U.S., so they slink off to third world countries away from American culture to do good works. Right there in Texas, near where Dr. Brantley left his wife and children to fly to Liberia and get Ebola, is one of the poorest countries in the counties in the nation, Zavala County, where he wouldn't have risked making his wife a widow and his children fatherless. But serving the night needy in some deadbeat town in Texas wouldn't have been heroic. Today's Christians are aces at sacrifice, amazing at serving others, but strangely timid for people who have been given eternal life. They need to buck up, serve their own country, and remind themselves of every, every day of Christ's words, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. There may be no reason for panic about the Ebola doctor, but there is reason for annoyance at Christian narcissism. So Dr. Brantley is an idiotic narcissist. Well, I wonder what you make of an argument. I hope some parts of it, uh, they raise concerns, and probably some of it makes you a little angry. She makes a number of of errors. I'll just just mention a couple of them. One... um, it's true that uh, Christians, we serve in our country and, and our own country, and perhaps we can do uh, better at it, but it's a false choice to say you have to stay here until we're perfect before you can serve overseas. It's not either or, it's both and. More importantly, though, I think she misses uh, the fundamental outward form of Christianity. It's, it's in our history. It's in our DNA. It's in our book that Christians look outside of their own lives, their own culture, their own ethnicity, beyond their own borders to serve. Now your Bible is open to a passage of Scripture this morning where we see this outward-looking culture being formed. Um, Acts chapter 3 tells the story of the first, and it's the most detailed description of a miracle performed by the apostles in the book of Acts. Uh, This is a story that actually is built on the general description of the church that's at the end of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 are just kind of the summary paragraph. And in Acts chapter 3, we actually see one episode of that paragraph being lived out. This is kind of like a, a television or a movie montage where they want to show you the passing of, of, of time. 
Um, so a narrator might come on and describe they worked really hard and you'll see scenes of them working really hard uh, in various various ways. <laughs> I don't think I should admit to watching this, but the A-team, they did this all the time, right? Uh, when the A-team was trying to work out their plan that comes together, they always, they would show various montages of them working at the passing of time. Uh, and, and Acts 2.42 is that summary, and Acts 3 is, is the, the one particular scene of this. It's a formative story. Uh, Peter and John are on the way to the temple, like Acts 2 says they did. Uh, they perform a sign and wonder, like Acts 2 says they did. Everybody was amazed, like Acts 2 said they would be. Uh, so it, it builds off of that paragraph. And Acts 3 also, it pivots us toward the future, because we're going to see... It introduces trouble into the church. Everything is great in Acts chapter 2. The church is united. People are in awe. Thousands of people are becoming Christians. <laughs> and then Acts chapter 3 happens. Oh. Actually, there's parallel between Acts 2 and 3. There's, in both chapters, there's a miracle. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. There's a healing in Acts 3. We're going to read in a minute. Then Peter gives a sermon, and then there's a response in, in all three. It, all three of those are in both these chapters. They, they kind of parallel one another. In Acts 3, though, the response is not only growth in the church, but it is hostility from the Jewish authorities, persecution. Actually, from Acts 3 on, we're going to see uh, a couple of scenes of the church being threatened outside, from the outside by persecution, and from the inside by division and, and corruption. And we're going to see how the church, this, these early followers of Christ, responded to that. Now I want to read the story here, and then I want to, we're going to go back through it and walk, walk through this passage. And what I want to show you this morning today is I want you to see why Christians in particular are equipped to serve other people. You don't have to be a Christian in order to do good in this world. We are thankful for the common grace of God that works through pagans, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, atheists. We're, we're grateful for those men and women who hold to those uh, belief systems who do good works. We're, we're grateful for God's grace there. But I want to show you how Christians, followers of Christ, are uniquely equipped to serve others. I want to show that to you after we read the story. So Acts 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. It's three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
Now, the first couple of verses for this passage provide the setting, where and uh, when this happened. And it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Your translation might say the ninth hour. In uh, Bible times, as a reckoning, they would start. The first hour would be 6 a.m. Uh, and the, so then by 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it would be the ninth hour, nine hours later. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in the temple, they offered the second of two daily sacrifices. And pious Jews would go into the temple to pray at 3 o'clock as the sacrifice was offered. What we're going to see, actually, in the next few weeks uh, as we go through the book of Acts is, at the beginning of the church, these are faithful Jews who are also followers of Jesus Christ. And they have yet to see and live out all of the implications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're still participating in Jewish temple worship. And over time, that in the book of Acts even, that relationship with Jewish temple worship is going to split. And we'll see that develop in the book of Acts. But Peter and John, as faithful Jews, are going into the temple for prayer. And we're introduced to another character, the third character in this story. John's here, but he never says anything. Really, there's, there's two characters. This third man is uh, lame. text says he was lame from birth. Apparently, there's something wrong with his feet and his ankles. There's weakness there. At the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us he was 40 years old. And he has one simple task every day, every day, probably for 30 years. He's been carried to this place next to one of these gates leading into the temple, um, the temple complex. Remember that 35-acre massive uh, place in Jerusalem? It was surrounded by a number of gates. We're not sure which gate this is. It just says it's the beautiful gate. must have been a nice place to sit, I would think. And it was a good strategy. What, pious Jews are going to worship every day he sits there and begs. And he's at the right spot for them as they're going to pray to, to, to do this basic act of, of charity. Now, verse 3 tells us about the meeting between these men and what happens. Look, at, look again at the text. When he saw them... Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. They were part of the crowd. They got the same pitch that everybody else did. Peter said, look at us. Now, Peter looked straight at him, and then he said, look at us. What intrigues me about this text is, I wonder, Luke here describes this look, this looking between the two of them, with a great deal of intensity. Peter focuses on him. And in the same way he asks, he demands the same in return. Look at us. My question about this text is why, why now? Why at this moment is Peter noticing him? It's almost as if for the first time he sees him. Why is that so? Certainly this cannot be the first time that Peter and John have just seen that man. Not the first time that he's been part of the scenery. They've been in Jerusalem for the last 50 days. They've been going to the temple every day. Certainly they've probably been going by this gate, and certainly they've probably seen this man here. What's different? What's new? What's going on today, this day, that Peter in particular looks at him, notices him, stops and ponders what he sees? I think what we, what's going on in this text here is we see one of the transforming effects of the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
It's not the main point of this text, but I think the Holy Spirit, the, the, Luke is indicating here to us one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It changes how we see people. The Spirit changes us in what we see when we look at people. I'm going to borrow from Paul what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And actually this is one of the reasons why Christianity uniquely equips people to serve others. It's because followers of Christ no longer live for themselves. Followers of Christ no longer live for themselves. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Followers of Christ no longer live for themselves. There's three characters in this story. One of them, at the beginning of the story, untransformed. It's interesting what Luke says. I don't think he's dropping this phrase as a, as a bomb in the text, but it's, it's interesting how he describes the man. The lame man looks at Peter and John, expecting to get something from them. It's a wonderful little summary of how most relationships work. How most Friendships work. We enter into them in order to get something. And as long as we get what we want, we stay. But if you don't get what you want, the relationship withers and dies. That's the default mode of the human heart. I am in a relationship for what I get out of it. You can enter relationships for all kinds of reasons. Maybe one of them would be security. Think back to the playground, right? You're 10 years old. It's time to pick teams for dodgeball. You're the captain. Which of those players standing over there do you want to enter into a team relationship with? The biggest and meanest one, right? You want that kid on your team. If nothing else, you can stand behind him. But also you're hoping that he, with his massive arms, can throw the ball as hard as he can and nail some of the people on the other team. right? You want to enter a relationship with this guy because of the security that he or she Girls can be tough. Might provide for you, right? Uh, maybe your relationships are about love. You're looking for love. You want love from so you want somebody to care about you, or at least pretend they care about you, and you'll do whatever you have to do to get them to love you. Or maybe you're looking for a relationship that will give you popularity or pleasure. Or maybe you'd want someone in your life who's fun because you're bored and you want to do something fun with someone. Or maybe you want a relationship that will give you stability. Or sometimes maybe people, you don't do this consciously, but maybe you tend to hang around with people who aren't as smart or aren't as successful as you are so that you can feel superior to them. And that's what the relationship gives you. Most relationships work this way. It's part of the twisted logic that keeps people in abusive relationships. You're in a home where your spouse beats you or harasses you, and you stay there because if nothing else, you have security. Where am I going to go? What's going to happen to me if I report this person to the police and they get arrested and that he's not working anymore and we have no paycheck? Then what am I going to do? But at least I got security now. This default uh, mode of being in relationships for what you can get is why so many marriages grow so cold. The Bible says that your marriage, that God's design for marriage is that marriage is supposed to be like a garden. 
Not like your garden out back that you grow corn and tomatoes. Not like that garden, but like a luscious arboretum garden. A place where you go and there's shade, beautiful shade. And you can hear and maybe walk through babbling brooks. You can eat luscious fruit that's growing on trees. Your marriage is supposed to be refreshing like that. But what happens if there's two parched people who are attached to one another, who are desperate for some water, some refreshment, and they don't bring any, they just want it from the other person. It doesn't take long for them both to shrivel and that relationship with it. Unless there's an external source of water in that relationship. A few weeks ago, I finished reading a novel. It was nothing to write home about. Uh, it was long, and it focused a lot of, of characters uh, as, as their story goes on. And one young lady, her name was Daisy, and Daisy was born about World War I, uh, and she was born in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. And Daisy desperately, she desperately wanted to be accepted in a Buffalo society, Buffalo's elite society. The problem was Daisy had enough money to get into elite society. The problem is that Daisy's father was a gangster and had made most of his money um, uh, during Prohibition, during that period of time of Prohibition. It's a young lady. So she, she devised this plan. She knew this guy named Charlie. Charlie's family was old and well-established and well-liked in Buffalo, but the problem was <laughs> his family didn't have any money. So Daisy decided this is her plan. She can marry Charlie, and Charlie will get money, and Daisy will get respectability, and everybody will be happy. Enter into relationships for what you can get out of them. Here's why Christianity uniquely equips us to serve. It's because Jesus Christ frees you from this persistent, driving neediness. In Christ himself, we find what we need. We find a love that is unfailing. We find unending interest that keeps us from being bored. Jesus Christ is the most fascinating person in the universe. If he bores you, the problem is not with him. We find security and courage and strength. He promises these things to us. And finding them sufficient in him... We don't need to attach ourselves to someone else to get something from them. We're actually free to serve them. Isn't this a great struggle that you have in your your friendships, in your your relationship, in your marriage? Isn't this a struggle that you have? The struggle that you have is to be satisfied with Christ sufficiently so that you have overflow to give to others. I don't want to mention this story too much, but think about what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You're here looking for water, Jesus said. I promise that I will give you water that will be inside of you like a spring of water and it will overflow. One of the things that you would be wise to pray about concerning your marriage or your family or your, your participation in your growth group as you get ready to go to them, you say, Lord, satisfy me, oh, Psalm 90, Satisfy me with your unfailing love so that being satisfied I may have overflow to serve these Awana clubbers, my wife, my kids, my grandkids today. So the gospel promises that to us. 
In his book called The Prodigal God, Tim, Tim Keller writes about a foreign movie. It's called Three Seasons. Three Seasons are, is a series of, of short vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the, the, the uh, vignettes is about a cyclo driver named Hai. A cyclo is a rickshaw that has been uh, changed a little bit to a bicycle. It's a bicycle rickshaw. And uh, Hai is one of the characters in this story. And the other main character in this little story is a woman by the name of Lan. And Lan is a beautiful prostitute. And what's true about both of these people is that they have longings that are not met. Unfulfilled desires. Hai, his desire is he loves Lan. He, he loves her. He wants to be with her and, and provide for her and care for her. She doesn't want to have anything to do with him, though, because, here's her unfulfilled desire, he's poor and she wants to be rich. In fact, because of, of her work, she spends a lot of time in very exclusive and very expensive hotels. She never stays there. She never sleeps there. But she's always in that world. And I, she's hoping in, in, in that her lifestyle, her, her prostitution, will earn her enough money so that she can legitimately enter these beautiful places that she longs to be. They both have unfulfilled desires. Well, Hai enters a cyclo race. And to his surprise, he wins a great deal of money. First thing he does with the money is he drives down to where Lan is and he shows her the money and, and asks her to follow him. So she does. They go to the most exclusive hotel in, in their city. He gives money, uh, pays for one night in this hotel. They go to the room and, and Lan has expectations. She, she imagines what High wants. He's got his money. He's, he's finally able to afford her. Much to her surprise, though, uh, High says to her, no, what I really want you to do is I want you to lay down in the bed and I want you to rest and I want to watch you sleep tonight. Lon is very suspicious. Very suspicious. Why would someone use their money like this just to watch her? Certainly he's trying to control her in some way. She is surprised, she's shocked because he is using his power to serve her rather than to use her. And in the process of this, he, he ruins her life. He makes it impossible for her to go back to her prostitution because she has experienced in what he has done for her unconditional love and it has changed her. She can't possibly think about love in the tawdry way that she had been thinking about it. Do you know what God does for us? Through Jesus Christ. He uses the power that he has to serve us. Sacrificially. Sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins by dying for us on the cross and rising again. And he, he breaks us. Finding this unconditional love, he ruins the plans that we have made to get what we want from others. Oh, satisfy us. Satisfy us, oh Christ, that out of the overflow of the, the fountain of water that is in us because of your great love, we might serve one another. One of the reasons that we meet together is to remind one another of this. 
We meet together. T- we can confront one another at times gently, admonish one another about what we're really seeking in our relationships, what we really want. Do you know how you can tell if your friendship or your marriage uh, or your ministry partnerships, do you know how you can tell if they're corrupted by this mode of getting rather than giving? Do you know how you can tell that? <laughs> they are. That's how you can tell. They always are. Because the default mode of the human heart, and, and we're sinful people. We fall into this pattern all the time. And, and it happens, you can see it most clearly when you don't get in the relationship what you think you ought to be getting. This relationship is not providing the entertainment that I think it should or the happiness or the security or the stability that I think it should. And it's at that moment when you come face to face with when you're not getting what you think you ought to get, how you respond is a reflection of how satisfied in Christ you really are. If you walk away, it's a sign. It's a sign that you're there to get rather than to give. Now we're going to see this developed here even more in this passage, but that's, that's one of the ways that Christianity uniquely equips us to serve, serve others is because we live not for ourselves, but for Christ, the text says. Now, Let's, let's move on here to uh, verse 6. Here's, here's actually another way that Christianity uniquely equips us to serve others. Here it is. Followers of Christ connect people with the all-powerful Christ. Those who are Christians connect other people with the all-powerful Christ. This is the main point of this passage. Verse 6, look at what it says again. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. There's a a lot here to look at. Can you imagine if you were that man sitting there, we never know his name, if you're in that man sitting there and, and, and Peter comes up to you and says, well, I don't have any money, what would your first thought be? Well, that beat it, man. I need people with money, right? A disappointment. You don't have any silver or gold? Ha, huh, it's not what I need. What's surprising is that Peter and John have what this man needs, but it's so abundantly generous he can't even conceive of it. And then he says... In the name of Jesus Christ, which indicates this is mediated power. In the name of Jesus Christ, or by the authority of Jesus Christ, or on behalf of Jesus Christ, this is Christ's work, power, at work in Peter. Uh, Jesus is the name that charms our fears. It bids our sorrows cease. It's music in the sinner's ears. It's life and health and peace. By the name of Jesus Christ, get up, of Nazareth. It's interesting he says that. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We don't use that term very often, but I wonder if you've seen in some of the tragic situation, uh, it's not tragic, it's evil. The evil situation that's taking place in Iraq, uh, ISIS, that uh, terrorist organization, moved into areas and they told the Christians, you have a certain amount of time, you either must leave 
or convert to Islam or pay the penalty for being a Christian. And in order to identify all those who are Christians, they ran around to their homes and they painted a symbol on the home. Maybe you have seen it. It's, a, it's an Arabic uh, letter. It's a U with, it looks like a U with a dot over it. And it is the first word in the Arabic, it's the first letter of the Arabic word Nazarene. They're Christians. They're followers of the Nazarene. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. There's a story that Luke tells in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, a a paralyzed man, a layman, is brought to Jesus. This is one of my favorite stories. This is the one where they lower him down from the ceiling. I love this story. Through the roof, they lower him down. And Jesus looks at the man in Luke chapter 5 and he says to him, oh, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the, the Pharisees, people watching, say, You can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, Oh, well, yeah, you're exactly right about that. So to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins, I say to you, Walk. And the man gets up and walks. There's no sense in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus is mediating power. No sense that he needs somebody else to help him. He's not doing this in anybody's name but his own. In fact, the miracle itself is this declaration of his authority to forgive sins and to heal lame people. This story, though, is clearly actually has the same intent. It's not to show Peter's supremacy, though. It's to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this more next week when we read Peter's explanatory sermon. But this is a miracle that is a public declaration that the Lord Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's able to do mighty works. This is about Jesus in in whose name this miracle happens. He's the author of life. And it's a sign of of the mighty triumph of God. In Isaiah chapter 35, there's this passage that describes what life is going to be like in that day that God wraps up history. How's it going to work? I think that uh, Charles Wesley, who who wrote For a Thousand Tongues to Sing, must have read this passage. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold, uh, your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. I love that verse. But look what Isaiah 35 says about that day that is to come. Verse 4. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Ye blind behold, your Savior comes. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is the culmination of history. And how does the culmination of history come? It comes in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus has given this man a whole new life. And Luke emphasizes it with all these verbs, doesn't he? He stands, he walks, he enters, he leaps. All these things that this man does. God, God has transformed him. He has changed his life. Now some of you know what this is like. You know what it's like to have your life transformed this way through Jesus Christ. You can talk about it. You can talk about what your life was like. You remember You remember choices that you've made. You remember things that you have done. 
And you know and you can speak about how Christ transforms. That's, that's the point of this story. This whole story is, is to tell us and remind us that the Christ we speak about, the Christ we represent, the Christ that we read about in his word is the author of life who transforms and changes and, and, and is full of power. That's the point of this story, but I imagine, oh, I imagine, we had a discussion about this last week, and I imagine some of you are wondering about this still a little bit, about this physical miracle. Last week, we, we surveyed some passages about signs and wonders and acts, and maybe you're, you're wondering still, some of you are, why does God, why is God not apparently working through people like this? Uh, We believe he answers prayer, he raises people from beds of sickness, but not like this. And you wonder to yourself, wouldn't I wonder to myself, wouldn't this be better, wouldn't this in Acts 3 be a better strategy for spreading the message about Jesus? Dan's serving in Haiti, right? He's the medical director. That's an impressive title. Medical director of Together We Can Haiti. Wouldn't Wouldn't it help if instead of giving medicine or listening to people's lungs and treating wounds, wouldn't it be better for him to be able to, to uh, uh, pick lame people up off the ground? Or uh, speak over broken limbs and have them set and healed? Or to touch people's heads and have fever disappear like that? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that work better than just practicing medicine and then handing out Bibles? Hmm. It's a good question to ask. I wonder about that sometimes. Let me caution you if, you, if you go too far down that road with those questions, you might potentially be making one of two errors. Let me, let me explain what, what those are, those errors that we sometimes make when we think about uh, miracles. The first one is, you may be elevating the physical over the spiritual, We tend to do this. We tend to elevate the physical over the spiritual. We live in a prosperous country and we're used to being very comfortable so that when physical calamity comes, we we fall into the, the trap of thinking that it's the worst possible thing that could happen to us. I mean, think about how comfortable your life is. I have a pillow on my bed that is softer than, a, than, than uh, the pillows, if at all, owned by 70% of the people in the world. You know what's tragic about that pillow on my bed? It's just for decoration. I don't even sleep on it. My life is so comfortable, I have soft things I don't even use. Just, but just to look better. Don't look at me all self-righteous. You do too, all right? I know. I know. We're so used to being comfortable that, boy, if, if some, some physical calamity, it's the worst possible thing that could ever happen. But think about this story here. What is this man's greatest need? Or more specifically, uh, where in his suffering existence, when it, where in his existence is his suffering potentially the worst? You know the answers to those questions. Jesus answered for them. He said, I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
The greatest threat to anyone today lying sick in a hospital is not the disease that is killing them, but the God to whom they and we must give an account. Physical healings are a good gift. It's a good gift from God, but it is not anyone's greatest need. But still, still you might wonder... uh, you know, I know that the spiritual is more significant than, than the physical, but wouldn't it be better to have the physical miracle as a platform for the spiritual work? I mean, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 3. Here's a second error that we can, we can make. We tend to forget the power of the resources that we have. What are those resources? Well, our biggest tool here, our most important resource, is, is the Bible itself. And this is not a second best tool for serving others. Uh, let me, let, let's engage in a little thought experiment here for a moment. What would be the best way? I want to show you how ugly and horrific poverty is. Let's imagine. I really want you to know how bad poverty is. Would it be better for me to, to convince you the, the horrors of poverty? Would it be better for me to get you on a plane and take you to India where you can see uh, the garbage dumps outside of Mumbai where thousands of people live and uh, uh, eking out any sort of living they can as they search through the trash? Would that be the best way to show you about poverty? Or would it be better for me to give you a Time Magazine article about poverty? Well, you've lived long enough, you've had an experience, right, that that you know that seeing it and smelling it yourself would be more effective. Now, let's think about something else. What would be the best way for me to communicate to you the reigning supremacy of Jesus Christ? Think carefully about this. Would it be for me to, at the next funeral we host in the church, to walk up to the casket and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, live and raise the person from the dead? Or would it be for me to read a story to you from this book about someone being raised from the dead? Which would be more effective? Think very carefully. You're tempted, you're inclined, because I am, to say, oh, raise the person from the dead. Man, let's get a video camera and put that on YouTube, right? And we can spread it to millions of people. That will be very effective. In fact, that, that's, it, this book cannot possibly be that more powerful. You would be inclined to think that way, except, except for the story that Jesus told once. We, we won't look at it. It's, it's in Luke chapter 16. Jesus told the story one day. And he imagines, he imagines that, that two men die, one a very rich man and one a very poor man. And the, the very rich man went to, to hell and he suffered the torments of his separation from God, bearing God's wrath. poor man went to heaven. His name was Lazarus. I don't know if this is exactly going to work this way, but, but in the story that Jesus tells, the man who's in hell suffering... Oh, he, He's crying out in torment for relief. Oh, just for relief, please, just a drip of water on my tongue. And then he, he makes a request, Abraham. He makes a request to Abraham, the person he sees representing God in heaven. And he says to Abraham, Oh, Abraham, please send somebody back from the dead 
Send someone who's died to go back and tell my brothers about the torture that I'm in so that they, they will turn to God and they'll trust in him and they won't end up in this condition that I am. And Abraham says, no, they've got Moses. They've got the Bible. They can read about this in the Bible. And the man says, oh, that's not good enough. The book is not enough to convince them. And Abraham says, if they won't believe the book, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. By that story, Jesus is communicating something significant to us about the power of the resource we have. The word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, is more powerful than the most impressive miracles ever performed. In this scene here in Acts, Acts chapter 3, there's no new books yet, there's no gospels yet, there's no letters of Paul, there's nothing inspired yet written down about Jesus. So this miracle is going to have to do until the book is written. But now we have this book. And perhaps one of the reasons that God prefers to use this book, think about this, which is more honoring and glorifying to God? Oftentimes. Somebody stands and they read from this book or they explain from this book and it's not very impressive. Not oratorically powerful and impressive, but what happens? The Spirit of God slams into you through this book. He wraps himself around people's hearts and he breaks stony hearts through the very simple act of reading and explaining this book. People leave and they say, that guy's not impressive. But oh, what he said. What he said. Isn't that what you want to happen? Uh, they used to tell us in, in our preaching classes, and it's true. You cannot impress people with yourself and Jesus at the same time. can't impress people with your power to do miracles and, that Jesus, and the truth that Jesus is a great Savior at the same time. God uses this very simple method. Uh, there's a story, I hope it's true, I'm not sure if it is or not, but there was a college student, he was a follower of Christ, and he moved into his dorm, and he found out that his roommate was a Muslim from another country. They started talking, and over the course of the next few weeks, they developed a friendship, and uh, uh, they would share with one another about their faith, and they would argue about Christianity and Islam, and, and uh, they finally decided that they would trade books and read them. So the Christians started reading the Quran and the Muslims started reading the Bible. After a few weeks of this, uh, the Muslim said to his Christian friend, You're right. Jesus is the Savior. I believe on the basis of what this book says, I'm, I'm trusting in him. I'm, I'm a Christian now. Well, his Christian roommate was thrilled. He's so excited. That's, ex that's excellent news. I'm very happy about this. And his former Muslim friend said to him, Yeah, but you cheated. What do you mean I cheated? You cheated. You gave me a book that's alive. I didn't know it was alive and you gave it to me and it says it's living. You cheated. The word of God empowered by the spirit of God is more powerful than the most impressive miracle performed. This is the book that Jesus told us to use. And it tells us about the fact that he's alive and powerful and able to do great miracles. Not just healing broken bones, but transforming your life. So take and speak it. Share it. 
Tell people about the one who breaks the power of canceled sin and endues your life with virtues and graces. God, through this book, can make you, you, a patient person. He can cultivate self-control in you. He can give you courage. He can make your marriage stable. He can transform you into a wise parent. Oh, that's amazing. All because Christ is the risen Lord. This is why we can serve other people, because Christ sets us free from this endemic neediness, and he really, really does have the power to give new life. Let's pray, shall we? Oh God, we come before you and we ask for grace to trust you more. That you would elevate your work and your word in our minds and our hearts. Your name, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we want to be a church that is motivated and driven and and, um, delights in Jesus, our risen Savior, who has power as the author of life. Would you do your great work in us? Would you tune our hearts so that um, your word is what we listen to intently and carefully because of its great power? You, Lord Jesus, have pointed it out to us. Forgive us for being distracted and neglectful and, and satisfy us with your unfailing love. Incline our eyes and ears to your word. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, saying, Amen.